Wayne Hooper gave us a good one with that one, huh? It's a good song. And we do have this hope. <clears throat> Church family, man, it's good to be back home again. Um, last, uh, last Sabbath, Pastor Sarah and myself and James, uh, we, we got to head up to worship with some brothers and sisters north of the river up at Meadow Glade. Um, uh, uh, Alyssa Alakal, who used to belong to this localized branch of the family, and they've, they've moved up there, but she gave her heart to Jesus in baptism, and Pastor Sarah and I were able to go up there and be, be a part of that, and it was a wonderful time. There was many of our, our church members that, that actually went up with us. It was a little mini Beaverton pilgrimage. We were represented well, but uh, it's, uh, there's, there's no place like home. It's wonderful to be back here today, so uh, it's very glad to be with you. Uh, I invite you one more time to have a word of prayer with me before we begin. Father in heaven, I just thank you in advance for the awesome God that you are and for what you will do in, in this room today. May we be blessed by the words that you have, have led me to share. May the Holy Spirit fill our hearts that we might be able to focus in and, um, and be blessed by your love. Amen. So how many of you like to, well, I should begin, how many of you like to read books, right? Any, anybody? A couple, couple hands go up. It's okay. It's just like a, a dying passion in our world, unfortunately. Lump audiobooks in there, too, for you. I, I confess I do as much audio reading <laughs> as uh, physical reading. But how many of you like to reread books? Anybody? Yeah, okay, some good stuff there. I love to reread a good book. I mean, who likes to reread a bad book? But I love to reread a good book. Sometimes it's because the second or third time, or maybe more, through a book, you pick up on something that you didn't really the first time, or you didn't retain it, maybe. Um, sometimes it's simply because the book is so enjoyable. Uh, there's a chance she's watching on the live stream, but if, if my sister is watching, I'm going to out her, even though she's uh, not here to defend herself. I don't know how many times that she read the Jane Austen's book, Pride and Prejudice, before she uh, went off to college in, in, in my high school years, but it was a lot. I, I, I suspect the number tops 50, but uh, my, my sister is a, is a Jane Austen fan, and truth be told, I am a little bit too. If you want to come collect my man card later, go ahead and try, but it's good stuff. It's good stuff. I love to reread books. And some of my very favorite books to reread are those written by one of my favorite authors, Malcolm Gladwell. Gladwell is a former full-time journalist for the Washington Post and the New Yorker and has written five books, many long-form articles, in addition to being an excellent podcaster. And perhaps what I like most about Malcolm Gladwell is that whether I agree with him or not, he always makes me think. That and I'm very jealous of his hair game, but that's another story and another sermon. Um, recently, I dove back into one of his books entitled Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking. How many of you have read this book by any chance? A couple of you? Wow. There's more people have read this book first service than second. That's really impressive. So now this is one for your reading list. Uh, Blink is a very fun book exploring the notion that our subconscious mind can often be trusted more than we think, and yet acknowledges its severe limitations as well. 
And in Blink, I ran across a section that I felt compelled to share with you. This is from chapter 2. Gladwell writes this. Imagine that I'm a professor, and I've asked you to come and see me in my office. You walk down a long corridor, come through the doorway, and sit down at a table. In front of you is a sheet of paper with a list of five-word sets. And I want you to make a grammatical four-word sentence as quickly as possible out of each five-word set. It's called a scrambled sentence test. How many of you are familiar with this concept? A couple? Okay. We're gonna, before I give you his test, I just want to give you a little example really quick. So here's a five-word set. Quickly, dog, happened, ran, the. Okay? Try and make a grammatical four-word sentence out of these five words. Give you just a few seconds to do that. And the one that I came up with is, the dog ran quickly. If you have a different one, we can debate the finer points of grammar later, but uh, this is my best op option out of that. All right, so now that you kind of see how it works, you ready for the test? Here we go. Number one, him was worried she always. Sentence, a few seconds for that. Number two, from our Florida oranges temperature. Number three, ball the throw toss silently. Number four, shoes give replace old the. Number five, he observes occasionally people watches. Number six, B will sweat lonely they. Number seven, sky the seamless gray is. Number eight, should now withdraw forgetful we. Number nine, us, bingo, sing, play, let. And finally, number ten, sunlight makes temperature wrinkle raisins. That seems rather straightforward, right? Actually, it wasn't. This is Gladwell's words here. After you finished that test, believe it or not, you would have walked out of my office and back down the hall more slowly than you walked in. Because with that test, I affected the way you behaved. How? Well, look back at the list. Scattered throughout it are certain words, such as worried, Florida, old, lonely, gray, bingo, and wrinkle. You thought that I was just making you take a language test, but in fact what I was doing was making the big computer in your brain, your adaptive unconscious, think about the state of being old. It didn't inform the rest of your brain about its sudden obsession, but it took all of this talk of old age so seriously that by the time you finished and walked down the corridor, you acted older. You walked slower. Okay, we're going to pause there for a second. How many of you are more than a little skeptical at this moment? <laughs> some hands went up, some very vigorously. Okay, very good. Me too, but let me continue reading. 
Back to Gladwell's words. This test was devised by a very clever psychologist named John Barg. It's an example of what is called a priming experiment, and Barg and others have done numerous, even more fascinating versions or variations of it, all of which show just how much goes on behind that locked door of our unconscious. For example, on one occasion, Barg and two colleagues at New York University, Mark Chen and Lara Burroughs, staged an experiment in the hallway just down from Barg's office. <clears throat> they used a group of undergraduates as subjects. Poor undergraduates, they're always the subjects in these things. But. And they gave everyone in the group one of two scrambled sentence tests. The first was sprinkled with words like aggressively, bold, rude, bother, disturb, intrude, infringe. And the second was sprinkled with words like respect, considerate, appreciate, patiently, yield, polite, and courteous. In neither case were there so many similar words that the students picked up on what was going on. Once you become conscious of being primed, of course, the priming doesn't work. After doing the test, which only takes about five minutes, the students were instructed to leave the room where they were at and walk back down the hallway and talk to the person running the experiment in order to get their next assignment. However, when a student arrived at the office to talk to the person to get their instructions, Barg made sure that the experimenter was busy, locked in a conversation with someone else, a confederate who was standing in the hallway blocking the doorway <laughs> to the experimenter's office. Barg wanted to learn whether the people who were primed with the polite words would take longer to interrupt the conversation between the experimenter and the confederate than those primed with the rude words. He knew enough about the strange power of unconscious influence to feel that it would make a difference, but he thought the effect would be slight. Earlier, when Barg had gone to the committee at NYU to, that approves human experiments, which I gotta say would be a fascinating committee to sit on, um, uh, they made him promise that he would cut off the conversation in the hall at 10 minutes. Like, do not let this conversation go longer than 10 minutes. And Barg remembers, we looked at them when they said that and thought, you've got to be kidding. The joke was that we would be measuring the difference between the two groups in milliseconds. I mean, these are New Yorkers. They aren't going to just stand there. We thought maybe a few seconds or a minute at most. But Barg and his colleagues were wrong. The people primed to be rude eventually interrupted, on average, after about five minutes. But of the people primed to be polite, the overwhelming majority, 82%, never interrupted at all. If the experiment hadn't ended after 10 minutes, who knows how long they would have stood in the hallway, a polite and patient smile on their faces. The experiment was right down the hall from my office, Barg remembers. I had to listen to the same conversation over and over again. Every hour, whenever there was a new subject, it was so boring. The people would come down the hall and they would see the confederate and they would not interrupt them. The person kept having the same conversation, evidently, and he had to listen to the whole thing. So for a whole semester this was going on, the people who had done the polite test just stood there. So perhaps a little less skeptical than before, maybe? Well, let, me, let, let me read just a little bit more. Gladwell continues, Priming is not, it should be said, like brainwashing. 
I can't make you reveal deeply personal details about your childhood by priming you with words like nap and bottle and teddy bear. Nor can I program you to rob a bank for me. On the other hand, the effects of priming are not trivial. Two Dutch researchers did a study in which they had groups of students answer 42 fairly demanding questions from the board game Trivial Pursuit. Half were asked to take five minutes beforehand to think about what it would mean to be a professor and write down everything that came to their mind. Those students got 55.6% of the questions right, which if you've ever played Trivial Pursuit, pretty good. <laughs> the other half of the students were asked to first sit and think about soccer hooligans, which if you aren't super familiar with that term, uh, they're basically fan gangs that participate in everything from taunting and bullying to actual physical violence and mayhem. Like, it's, uh, soccer fans around the world can be a little intense. But anyway, that's what he's referring to. It's generally senseless behavior. Those people ended up getting 42.6% of the trivial pursuit questions right. Now, the professor group didn't know more than the soccer hooligan group. They weren't smarter or more focused or more serious. They were simply in a smart frame of mind and clearly associating themselves with the idea of something smart like a professor made it a lot easier in that stressful instant after a trivia question was asked to blurt out the right answer. The difference between 55.6% and 42.6%, it should be pointed out, is enormous. That can be the difference between passing and failing. All right. Please hang with me through this next session, section because it does get a little bit more intense. The psychologists Claude Steele and Joshua Aronson created an even more extreme version of this test using black college students and 20 questions taken from the graduate record examination, the GRE, the standardized test used for entry into graduate school. When the students were asked to identify their race on a pretest questionnaire, that simple act was sufficient to prime them with all the negative stereotypes associated with African Americans and academic achievement. And the number of items they got right was cut in half. As a society, we place enormous faith in tests because we think that they are a reliable indicator of the test taker's ability and knowledge. But are they really? If a white student from a prestigious private high school gets a higher SAT score than a black student from an inner city school, is it because she's truly a better student? Or is it because to be white and to attend a prestigious high school is to be constantly primed with the idea of smart? Again, hang with me for just a little bit longer. Aronson and Steele found the black students who did so poorly after they were reminded of their race lacked an explanation for it. I talked to the black students afterwards and I asked them, did anything lower your performance, Aronson said. I would ask, did it bug you that I asked you to indicate your race? Because it clearly had a huge effect on their performance. And they would always say, no. And something like, you know, I just don't think I'm smart enough to be here. The results from these experiments are obviously quite disturbing, and they suggest that much of the time we're simply operating on automatic pilot, and the way that we think and act and how well we think and act on the spur of the moment 
are a lot more susceptible to outside influences than we realize. It's pretty disturbing to think that it's possible for us to be so easily influenced, isn't it? <laughs> and not just influenced, but even influenced into behaviors based on a message that doesn't even have any truth in it at all. Now please know that I'm definitely not trying to make us all paranoid about being primed. <laughs> However, we do know that we live in a world where there are other humans trying to influence, influence us in many, many different ways. And we also know that many of these voices are willing to stretch the truth or even straight up lie to us to achieve their purposes. And even beyond this, we know that Jesus and his followers believed that the agencies behind the lies of this world are not of flesh and blood. I invite you to turn with me to the book of John, chapter 8, verse 30. John, chapter 8, and verse 30. <clears throat> Jesus is in an intense conversation with some theologians in the temple, and it's getting pretty heated. And yet we see in verse 30 that as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone which i got to say is pretty ludicrous. Like, uh, did, you know, for those of you who have read the Old Testament, and these people, this was their history books. I mean, it's, I think at one point, I didn't do this recently, but, um, so forgive me if my number is a little bit off, but at one point I went through and I counted the amount of times, either, either like really short-term or even like generationally, that this family was in slavery over the years, and it's like six or seven legit times that they were either captive or kidnapped or enslaved over the course of their history. So this is a little silly of them to say. But they say, oh, we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you, you will become free? Well, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus is like, I'm not even talking about the other slavery either. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham, that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. They're throwing a little bit of, of, of dirt at Jesus over the perceived circumstances of his birth. They say, we have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father... You would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. 
you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Now there's much that we could talk about through this passage. I really want to focus in, not necessarily on the people that Jesus is talking directly to, but of the one that he is describing here in this couple sentences. He refers to him as the devil, or this is a, a, a Greek word for the, the old Hebrew word Satan, or the adversary, the accuser, the enemy. Jesus describes him as a murderer from the beginning, seeking to take away life from the beginning. Does not stand in the truth, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. All throughout time on this earth, the father of lies has been peddling the same garbage. He did it in the Garden of Eden. He did it throughout the Old Testament. He tried to tell it to Jesus himself, and he tries to tell it to you and to me every day. And here are the two lies. That God is not who he says he is, and that you are not who he says you are. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, God creates this beautiful, beautiful word. And and he he continues to, over and over throughout the poem of Genesis 1, say, this is good. This is good. And he makes humanity and says, this is very good. And all this is communicated to Adam. There's one thing, there's one problem that God finds in his world. He says, it's not good that man should be alone. And so God rectifies that problem and there's woman, and she and Adam together, it says in Genesis chapter 1, that male and female together create the image of God. Humanity is created in God's image. And God informs them of what is good in this world that he has made for them. And he points out to them, every single tree in this garden that bears fruit, it is good for you. And a matter of fact, not only is it good for your food, but it actually looks good too. It says that in the text. It's really cool. Well, a little bit of time passes and there's a serpent who begins talking to Eve. And you know how the conversation goes. And the lies that this serpent says to Eve are that God, (laughs) he says he's your creator and that he's created a good world around you. Well, It's not exactly true. God is holding you back. If you disobey God and choose to define what is good and not good on your own, then you can become like God. But you're not there yet. You're not really in his image. God isn't who he says he is. He says he's a loving God. No, he's, he's just trying to keep you on a leash so that you don't really figure out that you're blindfolded as well. And whether you in your mind consider 
that Eve actually eating the fruit or something that went on in her mind before she reached up and grabbed it and took a bite. Whatever you think that first moment of sin is, no sin in that moment would be possible had she not bought the lie. That God is not who he says he is. And that you are not who he says you are. Well, my purpose for, uh, in speaking to you today is not to... Um, lay out an elaborate argument to refute these lies. Um, perhaps that is disappointing to you, but I apologize. But uh, we can have that conversation another time. I just want to operate on the, the faithful assumption that I believe most of us have made that these are lies. The truth is God is who he says he is. The enemy's assertions about God were forever proven to be false, to be lies at the cross. Remember a few weeks ago we were in John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Part of the nature of God that the enemy tries to convince you of is that God would not sacrifice himself to save you. And Jesus proved that wrong at the cross. The cross is proof of God's love for us. And the empty tomb is proof that God has conquered even death itself. That he has been and still is the source of life. God is who he says he is. And the implication that is so hard often for us to grasp is just as real though. That you are who he says you are. If one is true, the other is as well. You are who he says you are. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are free. You are a new creation. You are pure. You are righteous. You are blameless. You are holy. You are a child of God. You are in the light. In Jesus, in Jesus, we are so much more than the enemy would have us believe. In the garden, the serpent convinced Eve that she was not the image of God, that she was blind, and that she was being held back by God from life. Jesus put an end to those lies. And even though Jesus has broken every power that the enemy has over us, if we do not believe what Jesus says about us, what he speaks over us as our new identity in him. The salvation of Jesus does us no good. Now, if you are like me, and maybe you aren't, which is fine, but if you're like me and it's possible that, that you have struggled with this a bit in your life, this whole identity in Christ thing. Maybe you have struggled to feel worthy of what Scripture says over you. <laughs> or maybe you have struggled to believe that salvation can actually be as simple as the New Testament says that it is. And so you have both consciously and maybe subconsciously added more layers to pass through, more hoops to jump through, more levels to ascend. Just a side note, sometimes we, the way that we talk 
um, amongst each others. <clears throat> and I, I'm guilty of this, even though it's a pet peeve, I do it too. It's, I think it's kind of a human thing, but it's not right. So we talk about, well, this, this person, they're on a whole other level of, of spirituality or closeness to God than myself. We talk and operate as if there's like some sort of a flow chart or levels that you can like get up to. And well, they're good in this area, so they must be on like level 37 and I'm here stuck on level 26 or something like that. So it's not a linear thing. Like we need to stop operating as if like, well, they're, <laughs> they seem to have figured this out, so they must be on a higher level than it. That's not a game worth playing. But anyway. Maybe you have been scared even of spending time looking at the cross at all because you know that it is what you deserved. And you can't seem to get past that fact to the more important fact that Jesus paid it all. It's a bit of my story for another day. But brothers and sisters, because God is who He says He is, you are who He says you are. So, what does all this have to do with Malcolm Gladwell? <laughs> if it is true that we are a lot more susceptible to outside influences than we realize, then we need to make sure that we surround ourselves as much as possible with the voice of God. Do you want to know the secret to living well in Jesus? He said it in John chapter 8, verse 31, 32. We read it a few minutes ago. I'm going to turn back there together. Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. and You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus says, abide in my word. Literally, live here. Dwell here. Make this your home. Jesus says that then we will know the truth. So what is the truth? Well, it's a bit of a trick question. A better question is, who is the truth? Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, very good, and the life. Yes, there are truths that we can learn and be sure of that are kind of more spelled out and, and logistic. But the truth is Jesus Christ himself. If you abide in my word, you will know the truth. You will know me. And you will be free. In John chapter 10, Jesus describes it by saying that the sheep know the voice of the shepherd and they follow him. And they won't follow a stranger because they know this voice. You know, sometimes I think I have a lot of baggage. I'm not that old, but still got it. Um, honestly, I don't know if I have any more than any of you, but we don't really need to pull the, the scales out and, and measure who has more. It's just acknowledge that we all maybe have a little bit. It's not worth trying to figure it out. But just to be like really honest with you guys, I have struggled in my life to take joy in Bible study, in reading the Bible on a consistent basis of devotional life, if that's a, well, however you tend to think of it or, or, or phrase it. It hasn't come easy or natural to me. Um, 
it's always kind of felt like I was supposed to do it like a, a spiritual chore, as it were. Um, like, God expects this out of me, so I better do it. Um, and I definitely can't blame my parents for this, even if I wanted to, because they didn't teach me that, nor did they model that attitude. Honestly, I don't even have a good explanation for it other than kind of the rebellion in my own heart of not really wanting to, to sit still and, and, and take part. So I have, whatever the reason is, I really struggled in my life to find a consistent, healthy motivation for spending time in the Bible, which is kind of a crazy thing for a pastor to say, right? Because it's like, don't we like go to sleep and wake up with memory verses in our heads and whatnot? I mean, maybe maybe Rodney and Sarah that way. I don't know. They, I I would like to be. But I do spend a fair bit of time in the Bible. I want to clarify something as well, because maybe you might find yourself in a similar boat. Spending time in Scripture in preparation to teach and preach is fantastic. But even that is a poor substitute for abiding in the Word. Jesus says that abiding in His Word will help you follow Him, will help you know Him, and thus will make you free in Him. And sometimes we tend to operate as if the truth is something that we can learn and then know forever. Well, I learned, I, like, I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's true. I learned it, got it. And that works if, the true, if truth is simply a kind of a, a, a belief assertion. But if the truth is a person, it requires more than just a one-time learning experience. Yet Jesus knows that until he returns to this world to make all things new, every day on this earth is a day in enemy territory, as it were. Jesus has won the battle. He's won the war. And yet, Scripture says, in order that as many might come to faith in him and salvation in him is possible, he, in his wisdom, is delaying his return to claim his territory. So those who have given their life to him and have taken the new one that he gives to them are agents for his kingdom in this world, sharing the good news that King Jesus has won. But there are millions of voices around us every day peddling some form of the enemy's lies, that God isn't really who he says he is, that you really aren't who he says you are. Which is where abiding in the Word is so important. When I feel like I am unworthy to be called a son of God, I need to let 1 John 3, 1 wash over me. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And when I question whether my salvation is sure, I need Ephesians 2.8 to flood my soul. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God. And when I feel drawn to know more about the ins and outs of the darkness of this world, I need to be reproved by Romans 16.19 that I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And when I feel anger and hatred towards those who treat me unfairly and those who seek to thwart my best efforts, 
I need to be lovingly guided by Jesus' words in Matthew 5.44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And when I am tempted to feel superior to others because of my perceived ethnicity or because of my gender, I need the words of Galatians 3.28 to speak life to me. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Abiding in the Word is surrounding yourself with the words that Jesus has spoken over you. We are a lot more susceptible to outside influences than often we realize, but we're not without hope. If we abide in his word, Jesus says that we will follow him, we will know him, and we will be free in him. I want to share with you again a uh, short little video that showed, shared it with you several other times, but I personally can't, can't see it too many times, so I'm going to just uh, kind of impose it on you once again. Um, and on, on my best days, I imagine that I, I should begin every day by, <laughs> by viewing this. Um, and if you would like to uh, see it yourself again, I last night shared a, a link to this video on our, our church's Facebook page, so you can go there and check it out later if you want. But uh, just, just be blessed by this, the encouragement of this video.
Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the great love that you have given to us. You call us your sons and your daughters, and it is you who has made us so. Father, we know that there are many voices in this world seeking to define who we are. May we only look to you for our identity. Father, we've seen that in order to do this, we need to spend time in your word. We need to live there. As Psalm 1 describes, we need to meditate on your words day and night like a tree planted by streams of water. And so we ask again for the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts and burn within us a desire to abide in your word. Let us not regard your word as a textbook of required reading to accomplish, to satisfy the demands of a professor. (laughs) Let us not view time spent with you in prayer as penance. But instead, let us regard your word as the love letter that it is, written to us that we might be encouraged by the reminder of the love of Jesus. Let us regard our time with you as a privilege. Keep us in your love. We thank you for hearing our prayer. And now, church family, may you live each day with these words ringing in your hearts. I am chosen, not forsaken. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Amen.